This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. And I am your host, Corey Dathan. So grateful to have a place to talk about faith and politics and really important ideas in our culture with all kinds of interesting folks across the spectrum, but people of goodwill and good faith. I am super excited to announce that our program is now part of the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts that examines what's broken in our democracy and how we can work together to fix it. So you can understand if you've been listening to the show, why we're so excited to be a part of this great network. So please remember to subscribe to TPNR, Talk Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. If you haven't already, tell a friend, give us a good rating and leave a review. Easiest way to find us is our main site, which is www.politicsandreligion.us. That's www.politicsandreligion.us. Or feel free to connect with me on all the social media apps, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, post.news. I'm on all of them. I'm at Corey S. Nathan. That's C-O-R-E-Y S as in Sam Nathan, at Corey S. Nathan. All of that helps get the word out so more people can participate in the conversations like the one we're having today with Stephen Newcomb. Stephen Newcomb is a Shawnee Lenape scholar and author. He has been studying and writing about U.S. federal Indian law and policy since the early 1980s, particularly the application of international law to indigenous nations and peoples. Mr. Newcomb is the director of the Indigenous Law Institute, the author of Pagans in the Promised Land, Decoding the Doctrine of Christian Discovery, and the co-producer of the documentary, The Doctrine of Discovery, Unmasking the Domination Code, both of which we'll be talking about today. His work examines Christendom's legacy of domination and dehumanization that has resulted in the near destruction of thousands of years of spiritual and ecological wisdom developed by indigenous peoples and nations. Mr. Newcomb has worked on indigenous peoples issues at the United Nations for 20 years. His work has been published by Wiley Blackwell of Oxford, NYU School of Law, Fulcrum Publishing, UCLA School of Law, the Griffith School of Law in Australia, among other publications. In May of 2016, Mr. Newcomb met Pope Francis at St. Peter's Square and Archbishop Tomasi at the Pontifical Council for Justice and Peace regarding the papal bulls of the 15th century. Stephen Newcomb, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me on your show. Yeah, this is a real honor. I've been ensconced in your work and uh, I, my eyes have been really opened. It's it's um, intimidating in a lot of ways uh, of, of how ignorant I am to some of our history. And Steve, we'll certainly discuss a lot of your life, life's work, as I said, the book and everything, but I have to ask about your meeting with Pope Francis. Your work makes a meeting like that particularly significant. What was that like, meeting Pope Francis and Archbishop Tomasi? Well, I think that it was a was my second time being to the Vatican. I was there in the year 2000. I mean, the basically, it was a, pretty much a photo op with the Pope, but I was able to give him a copy of my book and a copy of a document that we had prepared in advance and also was able to talk to him just briefly 
about the fact that we were calling on him to revoke the papal bull of May 4th, 1493, to lift the darkness that the Vatican placed on our peoples. And upon me saying that, he said he would read the book, but I don't know how well he reads English. And, and I, I guess I should have been more overwhelmed by the moment or something, but I, I felt it was such a, a long time in the development up to that moment that it was just seemed appropriate. And I mean, it was profound, but it just seemed like it was a culmination of everything we had done up to that point. Yeah. And so when my friend Virgil Kilstraight and I began the effort to work toward the revocation of that, that particular papal document, and there are many of them, but that was our central focus. That was all the way back in 1992 when we founded the Indigenous Law Institute and began our path. So you know, we had written a letter to Pope John Paul II back in 1993 that went to the Vatican, and we had uh, continued on with that work ever since then. So, of course, Virgil unfortunately passed to the spirit world in February of 2019, but a number of us carry on, you know, in his absence, So, which is a very deep absence in terms of how profound of an impact he had on my life particularly, but many, many people's lives. He was quite an amazing human being. So then the meeting with Tomasi, Archbishop Silvano Tomasi was about two and a half hours, I think. And many of us, I, well, all of us that were there, but many of us were able to speak very specifically to the nature of the Vatican documents that we're talking about and the patterns of domination and dehumanization and the the harms and genocidal effects that those documents have had and continue to have on our nations and peoples. So it was very profound all the way around. It was amazing to be able to be there and uh, just carry on the work. And did Archbishop Tomasi seem uh, receptive to what you had to offer in terms of all the research that you've done? And has there been any action since that time? Well, I did say to him early on in the meeting, I said, with respect, I believe that there's much of your own history you don't know. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever actually read the papal bulls? And he said, uh, no, I must confess. And I said, well, that's okay. But I've been reading them in Latin and English since 1989. So I think I know a little something about them. Allow me to elaborate. And that's when I went into the Latin and the English understandings that I have uh, about those documents. And I, you know, perhaps he was impressed that, that uh, I had managed to gather that information. He's a consummate communicator as uh, most of the Vatican people at that level are. So he knows what to say to uh, any given audience. So I, I think it went well, but we received a two and a half page letter from him sometime afterwards. And initially that seemed impressive, but upon closer examination of his letter and deeper reflection, I noticed that actually there were only about, I'll say less than 30 words of the two and a half pages that pertain to what we had actually spoken to him about. Mm. So the rest of it was filler. 
I think the favorite dance move of the Vatican is the sidestep. So the <laughs> uh, that that's what they're they're pretty good at engaging in. Well, speaking of sidestep, I, I was thinking that folks that are hearing for the first time that there are papal bulls that have an effect on even how we're thinking to this day, it's hard to draw that straight line. So for example, if I were talking to one of my Christian friends, uh, one of my friends from church, they might say, oh, well, that's the Catholic church, that's the Middle Ages or you know, uh, way before our time, and that's not really us. But a lot of your work in the book and in the documentary, you can draw a pretty straight line from those papal bulls to um, US law, uh, to even um, how you're dealing with cognitive thinking. I want to get into all that, but first, yeah. what, I, what I wanted to do was I, I wanted to get a sense of your own background and your own people. In particular, at the end of the documentary that you co-produced, The Doctrine of Discovery, you quoted Shawnee Chief Tecumseh. If you remember that quote, could you tell us, number one, who Tecumseh was, and more importantly, the significance of what that quotation meant means to you? Well, Tecumseh was a Shawnee leader, a, a very profound man. He had a vision to unify the various Native nations in common cause against a common foe, namely the Americans, the long knives, as some people would call them, with their bayonets. And so he was a tremendous orator. He had amazing charisma just an extraordinary personality. And the quote at the end of the movie, and I don't have it memorized exactly, but basically uh, he's expressing the kind of philosophy that so many of our nations and peoples have in terms of the deep understanding of the, the meaning and purpose of life, which is for human beings to live according to values and understandings to be a benefit to one another and all living things. And that's the central purpose of our lives. And of course, uh, uh, my friend and mentor, Virgil Kilstrait would talk about the seven laws of the Ochette de Chicoin, the uh, great Sioux nation, as some people might uh, understand it in English the seven council fires of the great Sioux nation. But those seven laws, beginning with generosity and, and compassion and sharing and um, wisdom, seeking wisdom, seeking understanding, bravery, humility, uh, patience and fortitude. There are seven laws that when everyone is working very concertedly together to uphold those laws and to behave beneficially toward one another and all living things, there's a way in which that brings to, uh, brings about a uh, spiritual way of life. Mm. So it's a spiritually oriented way of life, which means that we have a deep understanding of our connection to our ancestors, to uh, the spiritual dimension of life, which is basically talking about energy, right? So, um, how do we attune ourselves to the energy within sacred and significant places, but also everywhere? I mean, every single moment of our lives, we're, we have energy to draw upon and work with the life force uh, that we are able to communicate with and to be in tune with in a profound way. 
So that that's the challenge because we have so many human weaknesses and and just being in this human form poses tremendous challenges for us. So how do we discipline ourselves to become excellent communicators to be able to have the patience to work through differences and to find the commonalities that we share despite whatever differences we may have? Or are we going to just come out swinging and that's all we know how to do? That's what I get out of Tecumseh's life, his life example, that uh, he was deeply committed to that vision of trying to maintain a free and independent existence, meaning free and independent from the claim of a right of domination exerted by the United States. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting as you flesh that out, flesh those concepts out for me, in particular to be a benefit to one another and to all living things is very much like a Jewish concept called tikkun olam, which means heal the world. Or as you're describing um, the seven virtues, they sound very similar to what's called the fruit of the spirit in the New Testament. Uh, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. But unfortunately, to your point, uh, as we as we are students of history, we understand that folks are enamored too often with the sword than they are with the word, you know, too much with the the riches or the position of, of domination than they are with uh, the sense of, of peace. So, um, yeah, it, that, that's why, like I said, and reading your work, it's maybe intimidating isn't the right word, but it it is daunting and um, con- uh, convicting maybe is, is, is an even better word. But I, you know, I wanted to, I wanted to ask you a little, much of your work shines a light on the results of the doctrine of discovery, which as you rightly point out, should more aptly be called the doctrine of domination, uh, resulting in the near destruction of thousands of years of spiritual and ecological wisdom developed by our original nations. I was wondering, have you studied your own people and your own nation story? And if so, if you could share some of that background with us. Well, I have to say that I wasn't raised with those teachings. And so that's an unfortunate part of my life, uh, something that I had great anger about early on. Uh, I still do, but it's just uh, channeled in a different way. And so I don't really have a lot of those uh, specific teachings. We didn't grow up with that. My grandpa, Bushyhead Spybuck Newcomb, and his father, Solomon Newcomb both ended up at Haskell Boarding School, which was an institution designed by the United States government, along with all the other uh, boarding, so-called boarding schools. Um, one amazing Mohawk woman, Janelle Beauvais, pointed out schools don't have graveyards. But uh, anyway, they went through that uh, indoctrination process and and I think that part of the result of all of that genocidal trajectory is that uh, many people, such as myself, don't really have a lot of those uh, those connections. And that partly has to do with the fact that my native grandparents, my grandma Bessie Edmonds and my grandpa Bush, they moved to Oregon, the Pacific Northwest in the 1930s during the Dust Bowl times. And so that resulted in me being born on the West Coast in Portland, Oregon. So, yeah, I don't really have a lot of those. I mean, I can share some general things, 
but in terms of specific teachings, I guess I have more of a grounding in, you know, what other elders have taught me, such as Virgil and, and a number of others. But the, in general terms, I, I am able to, I think, express what I have been able to put together for my own understanding and insight with regard to the teachings of original nations and peoples, such as I already mentioned. I can give you a real key example of that with regard to uh, the Lakota language as an example, the sound law is a term of deep affection. So pila mia or wopila or tukashila, every time you hear that law sound in there, that's a term of deep affection. So it's actually a deep affection toward life structured and built into the language itself. And so that's a central feature of the language. And the language was evolved for the purpose of prayer, for, for meaningful communication with all forms of life. And so mitakuyasu is, and hopefully I'm pronouncing that correctly, but basically saying all my relations, or as I prefer to say, all our relations, meaning everything. Our relations are all living things. And that's the deep teaching. So in our Lenape language, the, if you're talking about the creator, you would say Gishila uh, Miang. Well, actually, that's addressing the, the creator directly. If you're addressing the creator, you say it in that form. But if you're talking about the creator, you would say Gishila Mikong. So the way in which I pray in our language is to say Gishila Miang. Which is our ancestors, our dearly departed ones. So give me a blessing. Uh, give us a blessing more inclusive of everyone. And basically, it's saying, stand me up straight and tall and true. Uh, this is my understanding of it, so that we can walk on the sacred path in honor of, of all life and all living things with respect, you know, in a manner of respect. So that's the little bit that I have pieced together through our Lenape Talking Dictionary, which was put together by an amazing man named Jim Rementer, who has spent uh, his entire adult life since he was quite young with uh, our Lenape elders and putting together that dictionary that people can go right to the internet and look it up and hear sound, sound files of our elders that are gone now. Mm -hmm. But fortunately, those things are preserved. And I think that it's amazing to consider the extent to which the United States government and the churches, the uh, Christian society, if you want to call it that, work so concertedly with deep determination to destroy everything about our nations and peoples and to uh, destroy our languages and our cultures and our spiritual and ceremonial traditions and our connection with our traditional homelands and so forth and to replace that with what they believed was what they called civilization one meaning of which is the forcing of a cultural powder, pattern on a population to which it is foreign. 
So isn't that interesting? That's that pattern of domination. If you're forcing a cultural pattern on other nations or peoples, you're engaging in domination, obviously. And when you engage in domination, you also engage in dehumanization. So that that is some of the amazing information that I eventually pieced together by having a great anger at the fact that I didn't have a lot of the, the connection with our traditional uh, teachings or wisdom and understanding. And so as a result of that, I did the best that I could to, uh, to understand why. Why had all that happened? Why, why did this happen to our peoples? And why, why was our family the way that it was in terms of the amount of dysfunction and, and so forth? So, and why was I such a wreck in terms mm. of my orientation toward life? So the part, a big part of my process has been attempting to heal and to work through that. Yeah. And as a result of that, I've acquired quite a lot of information about everything we're talking about. Yeah, yeah. So I want to point out just a, a coincidence. I think you said um, your grandmother's name is Bessie and one of your grandfather's names is Solomon. My grandparents on my Nathan side, on the Nathan side, is Bessie and Solomon Nathan. <laughs> so oh, just, interesting. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, and for what it's worth in Yiddish, uh, the, the um, syllable la, uh, la is uh, also a term of affection. So when you call somebody bubula, uh, tatala at the end of a word, it's a very okay. much a term of affection. Those are, those are some points of commonality that yeah. we can uh, talk about despite whatever differences we may have. So yeah, yeah. that's, and, and I, if, if I may uh, just, I'd like to really begin by setting a context for this interview because I tend to do that in my presentations now. Yeah, And real quickly, that context is the original free and independent existence of our nations and peoples extending back to the beginning of time through our oral histories and traditions. And the contrast of that with the system of domination that was brought by ship across the ocean and imposed on everyone and everything. And when we begin with that contrast, then we have a view from the shore a view of our ancestors looking out toward those ships coming toward them invasively, and the view from the ship looking toward our ancestors with the intention of imposing that system of domination on everything. So I think with that, those four perspectives, we have the ability to have a very deep and meaningful conversation, no matter what uh, the specific focus is. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and uh, you know, listen, I, I, much of the book was hard to get through because it's hard to get around history. It's hard to get around to also basic texts, fundamental texts that shaped the thinking of, you know, folks coming from Europe and, and you know, discovering, for example, they didn't discover that just the fact that they, they saw something, all of a sudden that means they discovered it. Actually, that's a good place to start. At the top of the book, um, one of the first things that was gripping, you, you say Old Testament religious concepts form a significant part of the backdrop of federal Indian law and policy. And that could sound like a bold and shocking statement to, to folks who've never considered it. So I was hoping you could tease that concept out a little bit for us. 
Sure. Well, the way in which the Old Testament was used by a number of, of thinkers, it had to do with the, the concept of the chosen people and the promised land and the covenant between Abraham, who became Abraham through a naming ceremony, and the deity of the Old Testament. And that covenant was to go and take possession of a land that that deity was showing to Abraham, who became Abraham, and to instruct him to go and, and receive that as an everlasting possession. So the chosen, the word chosen has to do with being chosen by that deity to go and obtain that land at least that's the way in which that's the way in which that story reads in my in my way of thinking my interpretation of it and the idea that a particular people are chosen by a deity but all the peoples that are acknowledged as already living in that land that is to be taken over and taken possession of uh those peoples are on the out side the uh, Hebrew people in the Old Testament are on the inside. And so you have the internal and you have the external. So the, the way in which the language of that Old Testament works is the uh, people that are on the outside, the external people. If you go to Deuteronomy 20 verses 10 through 18, you get to a point where the deity of the Old Testament says, save alive nothing that breathes as the Lord thy God has commanded you. Well, that's pretty clear what that means, right? Uh, and so that genocidal trajectory, even though that word was not yet coined by Raphael Lemkin, of uh, the annihilation or killing off of, of an entire people and the intent to do so, that becomes a type of patterning that then ends up being used against uh, so-called heathens, pagans, infidels, and unbaptized people within the Christian tradition. And so it, you know, I laid that out in the book pretty clearly. There are a couple of other people who have talked about the doctrine of discovery and their books, but they leave that part of the story out. And I think it's a key part of it. Now, when I say that it serves as a has served as a backdrop, the general prejudice or bigotry of so-called Christian people toward uh, non-Christians or those unbaptized peoples that are not part of the body of Christ, that becomes a basis for a judgment. But the judgment itself is created by the language that the people bring across the ocean. So when they're actually saying they're looking at heathens, pagans, infidels, well, they're also creating that which they claim to be looking at. Mm. And they're creating it through the language that they're using. So there would be no heathens, pagans, infidels, or any of that, uh, savages and so forth, if there weren't a language creating those concepts and creating the perception uh, that is created through, through the use of that kind of language. And so that's kind of the trick of the mind that a lot of times people th think that it's a fact that is a heathen. Well, you projected that onto that person and called them that with that interpretation. And then you act as if you had no part in the creation of it. You're just witnessing it. 
independent of your language. No, your language created that. And now you're acting on the basis of that language and that whole reality system. And, and you're also working in a way that provides you the basis for making a negative judgment against those people, even though they may have done nothing to you, but they're sitting on the land that you're supposed to inherit. Yeah, because you're the chosen people. So this is it's really interesting to get into it. And there's always the danger that people would say, well, you're anti-Semitic or you're this or that or anti-Christian. I'm not into anti what I'm anti is anti-domination mm. and anti-genocide and anti uh, destroying the ecological systems through, you know, destruction and devastation and poisoning with with toxic chemicals and all those kinds of things. So we should be able to work through those kinds of nuances and details without being at odds with one another, at least I would hope. Because if we all want a beneficial future together, then we should figure out how we can work on that. Yeah. But I think that a lot of times people are not, maybe they haven't developed a, an insightful kind of subtlety to be able to work on the communication process to try to achieve uh, a beneficial relationship with one another yeah toward a beneficial future the tendency um on the part of uh, a lot of us not just christians jews but a lot of us is to pick and choose what which pieces of scripture are comfortable for the argument that we want to make at that time but just as you're speaking about you know genocide it's hard to get around the entire book of joshua for example uh which describes taking over of the land. Um, I've heard some interesting conversations, rabbinic conversations about that, that, well, maybe God was also dealing with the Canaanites. That's not necessarily dealt with in the narrative uh, that we have in, in the Bible, but maybe God, it, it doesn't exclude the possibility that God was dealing with the Canaanites and the other peoples of that land. Th those may be um, separate stories. I bet my father or the rabbi at the um, Hasidic shul uh, could speak to that. But to your point, like, hey, let's let's reckon with it. It's all let's reckon with the totality of the history. Um, I would say, uh, you know, having grown up in a very observant Jewish household before becoming a Christian, that the most of the Jews, the Jewish people's history has been um, in exile in diaspora. Uh, we, we've been on the outside. I also find it ironic that as outsiders more often than being in the inside, what's described as you as you rightly point out in Deuteronomy, and then as I say in, in um, uh, the Book of Joshua, that being a minority among a dominating people, somehow the Jews are still here. The Israelite, uh, the people of Israel are still here, not the people of Babylon, not the, the the Persians, not the you know Nebuchadnezzar's people, what have you. So it's to your point, there's nuance there. It's it, There's a lot to dive into, but let's embrace all of it and not try to dismiss the, the parts that aren't convenient for whatever argument we're trying to make. But you know, this this speaks to something that you deal with a lot in the book. You, the, a lot of it delves into cognitive theory, which you've already touched upon. It's a framework to better understand, as you put it, the pathology of the dominating mentality that has led to such atrocities against Indian people. So can you briefly describe what cognitive theory is? Well, as I understand it, uh, I mean, there are probably a number of ways to, to describe it or define it, but it's, it's a theory of how the human mind works and how knowledge works. So 
I mean, this goes into the word discovery, right? The discovery is uh, understood as a kind of knowledge, right? You discover it, now you have that as part of your repertoire of knowledge. And it usually has the implication that it's new, that it was not known before, and suddenly you've discovered it. And maybe all kinds of people understood it before, but you just discovered it for yourself. Right. Or maybe uh, taking the totality of a given society that the society itself did not have that understanding or insight and then suddenly came upon it. And so then that's a discovery. So the idea that, um, uh, that human knowledge under actually operates on the basis of metaphors and of particular analogies and stories and so forth. That's a very important kind of insight and understanding because the way in which we use metaphors will determine the kind of reality that we experience. Metaphors shape and create reality just because they're part of the feature of language and language uh, also uh, shapes and creates, uh, excuse me, language also shapes and creates reality. So uh, not all language is metaphorical. Uh, I suppose there are some aspects that aren't, but uh, the the main point is that it's it's the way in which the mind functions and operates and having a deeper understanding of that will enable us to understand how the law operates or different areas of human knowledge and i think that's one of the most fascinating conversations to have with anyone to try to ascertain how do we know what we believe we know and how do we verify whether what we believe to be true is actually true? What, what, what's the litmus test that we're going to use or the type of evaluation that we're going to use? Or who are we going to turn to experts? Are we going to turn to our own investigation? And what if those experts have uh, certain financial or political interests that actually influence what, they, what they're putting forward as knowledge? Is that a factor that we should take into account? And so I just think that that's critically important. And then the metaphors that people make commitments to uh, and the way in which they organize their lives around certain kinds of metaphorical systems is also fascinating. So if you take in the Lakota language, which I'm not fluent in at all, I just have some basic understanding of it, but you take any of our traditional languages and there is a whole body of metaphors within that language, whichever one it is, that shapes and creates that form of reality. So it's a, let's say a Lakota reality or a Shawnee reality or a Lenape reality or a Kumeyaay reality, and just go down the list of hundreds of original nations and peoples and realize that each of those languages creates an entire world of understanding and experience. And so how that works in the human mind and in the brain, that is uh, a big part of what is called cognitive theory. Yeah. Yeah. And then you've already touched upon some examples, but I was hoping you provide a few more examples of how our language and basic assumptions just feed into specifically this, this dominating mentality. Sure. Well, one of the easiest ways to do that is to look at seven main meanings. Uh, Virgil Kilstrad, as I mentioned before, he 
had an explanation of the seven laws of, of their nation. And so there are seven main concepts in English that I managed to figure out just um, over the course of time, looking at the patterning. And those terms are civilization, state, sovereignty, ascendancy, dominion, property, and empire. And when you look at each and every one of those terms, it, it turns out that those are all words that mean domination at their mm. root. So uh, if you have seven times anything you or you know something to the seventh power, let's say, that's a hell of a lot of whatever that is, okay? <laughs> Yeah. And um, so civilization, I already mentioned the definition of that, the forcing of a cultural pattern on a population to which it is foreign. State, Max Weber defined that as a relation of men dominating men. If the state is to exist, the dominated must submit themselves to the authority claimed by the powers that be. That's a framework of domination. Ascendancy is controlling influence, governing power, domination. The word domination is actually listed in the definition of ascendancy. I think it's the only word that that is true of. And then uh, you also have um, sovereignty, which uh, J Jonathan Havercroft in his book, Captives of Sovereignty, defines as an unjust form of political domination that limits human freedom. And then you also have property, which is defined in the Ballantine's Law Dictionary from 1969, is not the material object itself, but the right of domination rightfully obtained over that object. And then you have William Blackstone in his commentaries on the English common law, defining property as the sole despotic dominion over external things. And on that basis, uh, Lance Liebman and, and Charles Monroe Hart, who are at that time Harvard law professors, defined property in their book, Law and Property, as the first establishment of physical domination over some part of the natural world. And then you have um, also the, the term empire, so the, which is obviously a system of domination. So if you have all seven of those and that those terms serve as more or less the context or the starting point of the context, the framework of a societal system, well, then it's definitely based on domination, but it's called by so many other synonyms uh, or so many other synonyms are used within that system for people to express themselves and to communicate that the domination aspect of it is never even noticed. There's a, a quote, um in the book that that is just really uh, still gripping my attention. I'm still ruminating on on this. The um, It's from the chapter of metaphorical experience in federal Indian law. You say this conception of Indian affairs as being akin to some huge Christian European reclamation project metaphorically conceives of American Indians as needing to be reclaimed or recalled from wrong or improper conduct by amending their character and behavior or needing to be rescued from an undesirable or unhealthy state. So obviously we're dealing specifically with Christendom's domination of the indigenous people of this continent. I was actually curious if you've, or in what ways you've observed the same disposition that persists today, whether it's American Christians or more broadly uh, and what its effects are. 
Well, let's see. Can you clarify that question a bit? Well, it, to, to me, what you described in the beginning of that chapter, it describes a, a disposition, a posture, if you will, of, you know, and, and again, using cognitive theory of sort of being on high or claiming a position of authority or claiming a position of being clean and having um, righteousness or, or, or goodness um, and, and having a, a, a unique and, and almost exclusive understanding to what is good. Um, but I see that even more pervasive uh, and, and it, it pervades in much of how we deal with each other today. I, I mean, I'm part of, I, like I said before, I became a Christian a number of years ago and I see it, that, that disposition pervading in the church. I was wondering it, whether it's in the church or the American persona uh, that, that dominates. I was wondering if you've noticed that and if so, how, you know, how so, like what the effects are? Well, I guess I would approach it, approach your question in this manner. And I already alluded to this to some extent. If, if when the Christians came in to our territories, they were already defining our peoples as lacking in something fundamental because they believed that they had the answer or or let's put it this way the cure but the but the affliction that the people had that supposedly had to be cured was also created by the very system that they were bringing in so in other words you create the solution you create the problem and then you claim that you have the solution to the problem that you've created so that's more or less the methodology that they're bringing with them a language system that we can look back on now and examine and realize, gee, it's still operational today. So, I mean, and this really goes into the more global aspect of what I have uh, located in terms of the information and the patterning of the information, which is the claim of a right of domination at, at its root no matter where you look in the historical record with regard to the documents that I'm talking about and examining in my writings, the claim of a right of domination is there. And so all those seven terms that I already mentioned, civilization, state, sovereignty, ascendancy, dominion, property, and empire, dominion that I didn't go into in my explanation, but all of those terms create a framework of domination. And then they're looked upon as just normal. So uh, if, if we say property, nobody thinks domination. That's just property. There's no understanding that domination is underneath it. And so with regard to what are these people lacking? Well, they don't have uh, civilization, meaning they're still running around loose. They're still running around free. But you, they don't define it in that way. They define it as uh, an affliction that they're lacking what the Christians have coming in. So the, uh, the American enterprise goes all over the world with its 750 or 800 military bases all over the planet as the American empire and imposes its will all over the globe. But the whole enterprise is based upon a claim of a right of domination at its root. And that's something that was started by the founding fathers, uh, so-called founding fathers. They, they founded an enterprise, and that enterprise, I mean, George Washington referred to it as our infant empire. Uh, 
John Marshall referred to it as this our widespreading empire. And Jefferson understood it as an empire of liberty, but the liberty is for the empire. And so, you know, the the concept of the yeoman farmer and all that, okay, that's that's fine. But what's that based on? Property. So you have all these lands of original nations. There's no Christian European property law system existing over here. They have to create that. And in order to create that, they have to create the template for that. And they have to create the space and the opening. So there's something in the historical record that I call the doctrine of infidel non-existence. They exist physically, but they do not exist for the purpose of the enterprise. They have, to, they have to negate the original nations and peoples in order to create the space for and the opening for their system that they're imposing and constructing as the, as the empire itself. Yeah. So, the, so they, what they did is they created little colonies that they called territories, and they had a big colony that they called the Northwest Territory. And out of that Northwest Territory, they created five states. So, you know, Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, and Wisconsin, I believe it is. And so the those five states, that takes the word state takes us back to Max Weber's definition of state as a relation of men dominating men and so forth that I already explained, right? So the whole framework, if people have the time and the patience to go through it meticulously as I have over the course of decades, then these types of deeper insights and subtleties begin to emerge. And the whole nature of the enterprise is to look for the patterns and understand those patterns. So I I hope I've addressed your question. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, we'd be remiss if we didn't touch upon a very significant case that's codified uh, this right of domination in, in U.S. law. We're coming up actually on the bicentennial of a Supreme Court case, Johnson and Graham's lessee versus McIntosh uh, in 1823. Um, could you describe the significance of that case? Well, it's considered to be the cornerstone of property law in the United States. So property is that right of domination. So it's domination law in the United States. It's the foundational framework for the entire system. And what it says is that the Christian Europeans, the Christian people, is they, they have a specific quote from one of the English charters, the John Cabot Charter, and the Christian people are, are differentiated from the natives who are heathens, as Chief Justice John Marshall writes in the Johnson versus McIntosh ruling. So why is that significant? Well, because he says the Christian Europeans or the Christian people are the ones with the right of ultimate dominion. And that's according to the norms and rules of Christendom. And then the natives who are heathens only have a right of occupancy, which is not a property right. And that's been clarified again and again by the court. So it means that the infidels, the heathens, the savages are not allowed within the Christian European property law system to have a right of domination. The dom- right of domination is only for the Christians and the, the, that society that is being constructed, i.e. the American society. Yeah. So most people have no understanding of this at all for good reason. Why would they need to know it? They 
they're just living their life, right? But for those of us that want to understand how in the heck did this whole thing get constructed and built and on what basis has it been constructed and built? You know, I was fortunate that uh, my dad taught me to read at the age of, by the time I was four, I was already reading. And every time I would uh, want to know the meaning of a word, he'd say, look it up. Mm. So I got in the habit of using dictionaries. Yeah, the book, and, the book is, yeah. you know, throughout it, you you get to etymology even. It's it's great definitions and etymology and where it comes from. It, it was really yeah. enlightening. Yeah. So so that that's the key, because there's a there's an underlying code. You know, there's a federal code. Well, they're really serious about that. It's an actual code and we can decode that. But we also have the Vatican papal documents of the 15th century and the Johnson versus Macintosh ruling and the uh, papal bulls of the 15th century, just meaning papal decrees or documents issued by popes. That's what's meant by papal bulls, just the way they were sealed that resulted in them being called bulls. Uh, but those, the language within those documents illustrates so much of this. Because if you have a document whereby a pope purports to tell a king, namely the king of Portugal, to go to the western coast of Africa and to invade the people there, to uh, capture, vanquish, and subdue them, to reduce them to perpetual slavery, meaning uh, ongoing slavery, and to take away all their possessions and property, when you get deep into that language, you realize, well, that's a formula. That's a methodology. And you take that everywhere you go, invade, capture, vanquish, subdue, reduce to slavery or servitude or what have you, and to take away everything that belongs to them so that you will be enriched thereby. And so when you understand that a whole society and a whole global system is premised upon a claim of a right of domination, that is not uh, something that is praiseworthy except for by people that love to dominate you know mm -hmm. and love to have the the wealth and the luxury and so forth that that comes from that yeah but you know one one other thing i want to mention here while i have the opportunity is that when you go into the etymology or the etymological connections that are associated with the word dominion it takes you to the word domo that we cover in the film and the Latin word domo means variously to subjugate, to subdue, to force into subservience, to tame, to domesticate, to cultivate, and to till. To cultivate in Latin is colere, meaning to colonize and to design. And we take at the root of colonize, you have colon, the digestive tract of the predator body politic coming in invasively on top of the original nations and peoples and devouring everything. And then the root of colon is C-O-L-O, -O, to filter out impurities in the process of mining. So the backdrop for all of it is mining, and it ends up resulting in the mining of everyone and everything for profit. Mm. So the whole structure of the whole global system is the claim of a right of domination for the purpose of wealth and power. And and so there are people that are very skilled in that. They're they're experts in the. But here's the question that I have: How is it that the claim of a right of domination has become the organizing principle on the planet? It's an arbitrary decision for that to be the case. And I'm saying 
that there's no such thing as a right of domination. You can claim it all you want, but it doesn't actually exist. Yeah. And so, so we need to challenge that fundamentally is my yeah. view. And it's interesting, going back to that um, Supreme Court ruling, uh, Chief Justice John Marshall cites uh, directly from those papal bulls. Yeah. You know, well, uh, from, from the 1400s. He, he, he doesn't. He barely alludes to them in passing. But but who really picks up on that is Joseph Story, who was also oh, in right. the Supreme Court. Right. And so in his commentaries on the Constitution of the United States, he goes into quite a lot of detail and quotes the Latin, uh, some of the Latin language from the Vatican Papal Bull of May 4th, 1493, and includes that in his commentaries. And it's commentaries on the U.S. Constitution, which who knew that papal bulls from the 15th century had anything to do with the contextualization of the U.S. Constitution. Yeah. So that's that's very unique information. The other thing that's really interesting is uh, that this isn't just a 200 year old case. It's been cited, you know, in the 21st in, in cases that were decided in the 21st century. Yeah. So it, yeah. it, it has um, far reaching effects. You know, this is it feels like the beginning of a conversation, frankly, we could go yeah. quite a bit more. But I really love the way that you uh, your conclusion in the book. And, and I'd love to as one of the last couple questions here. What is our way out of this dark period uh, that in many ways we're still in? Well, that's the uh, tremendous question. I don't have an answer to that one. Uh, I think I was being far too optimistic in the conclusion of the book in saying the it gets darker before the dawn. But the I'm not sure what that dawn is. I mean, it dawns on us that, gee, it's the whole thing is premised upon a claim of a right of domination. But does that uh, enable us to see a way forward where that's no longer the case. I mean, this whole situation that's happened with uh, East Palestine, Ohio, and that derailment of the train and the release of all those toxic chemicals and the igniting of all that, it, it's so emblematic of the way in which the whole, you know, just the way in which the pristine landscape, the pristine waters that were here before they brought their system of domination over here, that's all destroyed. You know, look at the amount of poison in the fish, the mercury in the fish, and it's pretty difficult to go and find places uh, where you can fish without toxicity. Everything has been so poisoned and the, the, so much of the forests have been devastated and on and on and on. So the ecological devastation and destruction of so much of the continent is part of the aftermath of the domination system. And I think that that's a conversation that could be a, an entire program. Yeah. Because when the corporations are actually mandated by law to do that which is most profitable, and when you have a culture of deception and of uh, manipulation and of just deception, when that becomes a norm, what, what's the alternative to that? How do we get onto a different path? And I think that there has to be a fundamental examination of the very basis of the nature of the American society, but the whole global society. And I, and I think that we as original nations and peoples have something meaningful to say about that. But our voices are usually excluded from the mix. 
And that's why I really appreciate you bringing me on your program and giving me this opportunity to air these views. Absolutely. And, and, you know, like I said, this just feels like the, there are more questions than answers, but it, it means that there, That's right. it's the beginning of a conversation uh, if we're in the midst of it. But I couldn't commend the book and the, the documentary enough and all of your great work. The book, again, is Pagans in the Promised Land, Decoding the Doctrine of Christian Discovery. The documentary is The Doctrine of Discovery, Unmasking the domination code. Uh, normally, I ask if you have any questions for me, but more importantly, I uh, since in our in the little time we have left, I want to ask, how can we find more information about you? Any events that you have coming up? Your wonderful book, the documentary, original Free Nations, and all of the great work that you're doing. Well, thank you for that. People can contact me at info at originalfreenations.com. And uh, I think even a phone number is there for people to, to ring me if they care to. And then we have an event through a platform called Red Thought, uh, created by Joe De Gaudi, who was the chairman of the Yakima Nation for many years. And uh, my friend, dear friend and mentor, in a sense, uh, Peter DeRico, he um, has a book called Federal Anti-Indian Law, and Peter and Jode and I will all be on the Red Thought uh, broadcast that we're going to have February 28th, which is the 200-year mark since Chief Justice John Marshall, on behalf of a unanimous Supreme Court, handed down the Johnson versus McIntosh ruling. Mm -hmm. And it'll be quite a few hours that day. It'll be basically a half-day uh, mini, even mini conference in a yeah. sense. So. I have a, I have an event coming up later this year that I have I'm going to ask you about offline, but uh, yeah, it's along the lines of who gets to tell the story, and it's a multi faith, uh, multi ethnic, multi backgrounds kind of conversation that I, I'd love to have. Um, and again, it, it feels like just the beginning of a conversation. But Steve, I really appreciated having you on today. A lot of eye opening uh, information, and I hope other folks. Um, you know, pick up the book and watch the documentary. I'll have all the links in the show notes. Thanks again, Steve. It's really good getting to know you and getting to know your work a little bit better. Terrific. I really appreciate it and uh, look forward to other opportunities. Absolutely. As always, if you dig uh, what we're doing here, hit the subscribe button, leave a review and comments wherever you get your podcasts and tell a friend about us. Talk of politics and religion without killing each other. We're easier to recommend than ever. It's politicsandreligion.us. It's www.politicsandreligion.us. Or you can find me online at Corey S. Nathan. That's Corey with an E and S as, S as in Sam at Corey S. Nathan. Now go talk some politics and religion with gentleness and respect and have a great week. Thank you for joining us today. If you dig what we're doing here, it is super easy to follow us. You can go to our site, politicsandreligion.us. That's with the and spelled out, A-N-D. Politicsandreligion.us. And we're on all the socials, at TP and R pod. You know, TP and R pod for talking politics and religion pod. And here's a big way you can support us, by becoming one of our patrons. You can even become a producer or executive producer of our program and have a lot more say in who we bring on, the kinds of questions we explore, or just help us keep the lights on. But mostly, we really appreciate you giving us a listen. So for the whole team here at Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other, thanks for hanging out with us. We'll be back in a few days to do our little part in Tikkun Olam. <laughs>